Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes as always and today I'm joined by Dr. Michael McCulloch. He's a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego, where he directs the Evolution and Human Behavior Laboratory. Most of the research they conduct in the lab is focused on extending an evolutionary analysis to some of the key psychological features of human social life. He is the author of several books, including Beyond Revenge, The Evolution of the Forgiveness Instinct, and the most recent one, and that we're going to talk about today, The Kindness of Strangers, How a Selfish Ape Invented a New Moral Code. So, Dr. McCullough, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. The pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me. By the way, could you just show the book? to the camera because I don't have a physical copy of it. So Absolutely, and, I'd be and, very pleased to. This yeah. is the copy of the book. Yeah, and it has a really nice cover, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's a cover that um, the publisher came up with, and really I just uh, exercised veto power more than anything. They, um, After writing a few books, I've come to the conclusion that um, covers and titles are best left to the publisher. Um, so I write them and they basically try to sell them. Yeah. And does it have something to do those ellipses there with the content of the book? I mean, because they seem like uh, things nested inside each other or something like that. Yeah, these things, you know, I, I think covers can be sort of Rorschach tests, can't they? Uh, I mean, it's so it's, it's, you know, it's got blue, gold, blue, gold, blue, gold, uh, sort of linked, linked, um, ovals. So when I see it, uh, I see three halos, you know, the gold ones, and I see six, you know, six links in a chain. So I can imagine, I mean, personally, when I, I see it, I, I see sort of, here's human decency and um, the way that it connects people to, you know, to strangers and to people who are different. So that's my take on it. Um, it sounds like you have a different take. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Let's see. Perhaps you can come back to that later on in the interview. But let's start with this. Let's follow the logic of the book. So um, since Darwin, people have been trying to explain our unusual levels of altruism from an evolutionary perspective, because I guess that apart from the eusocial insects and animals like that, we are the animal that shows the highest levels of altruism, I guess, if, if I'm not mistaken, of course. But uh, so could you tell us a little bit about that history of how people tried to explain altruism since Darwin? Sure, sure. I mean, uh, just to start, I think I might dispute that characterization a little bit because um, there's lots of altruism in the biological world. Um, if you, I mean, if you think about altruism as an evolutionary process. So we're going to try to define it in terms of fitness costs and fitness uh, uh, on the part of an actor and fitness benefits on the part of uh, a recipient. So, um, you know, if you think about it that way, where one individual is paying costs to provide benefits to another individual, um, that's really actually very common in, in the, the natural world. Um, you know, all kinds of single-celled organisms do that. Um, lots of birds, certainly the social insects, um, are uh, engaged in these behaviors. Um, among primates, I think it's fair to say we are 
uh, unusually altruistic in that sense. Um, and what we, you know, what we really have that I think is, I, you know, I've, I'm going to go out on a limb and say is zoologically unique, is a willingness to, um, uh, or at least the habit of providing benefits to complete strangers, individuals outside your group, outside of your cultural group, uh, that you might not even see ever see again, and that you might actually free, uh, actually never meet or know the name of, and that's weird. That's the thing that I think is is biologically weird about human behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mentioned the use social insects, but I guess that uh, in that case of helping strangers, we are unusual because most. I'm not sure if all of them, but at least most of the use social insects are use social because. Uh, in their group, let's say, they are all genetically related. So. Well, well, that's right, yeah. Um, if you, I mean, if you think simply about bees and ants, that's probably a good place to start. Uh, because of their mating systems, where you have queens and uh, the queen's mates, and you have drone workers, uh, and, the you know, and those drones are sterile, then you, what you're trying to explain that's weird is how do all these sterile individuals who will never reproduce manage to hang around evolutionarily because if they're not reproducing, what's the mechanism that allows the, the, the genes that produce drones uh, um, that, uh, uh, staying around, staying in the gene pool? So that, that is really odd, uh, the way that they give benefits to other individuals, particularly the, the queen. Um, and this ends up all working out because um, when they provide benefits to the queen, you know, bring food into the mound, assist her with reproduction, take care of her eggs and all that, the way natural selection's accounting process probably reconciled this is through a mechanism where the reproductive success of those drones, their lifetime reproductive success measured as the, the, the propagation of their genes in a population was enhanced by giving up reproduction themselves and assisting the queen, their mother, with her reproduction. Mm -hmm. So um, what, what we know from, from Bill Hamilton um, in the 1960s and his groundbreaking work was the currency of natural selection is simply the number of genes out in the population. I mean, this, of course, was is it was popularized by by Richard Dawkins, wasn't it? In in his seventy six book, The Selfish Gene. Um, so, if we're looking at simply a, a cloud of genes, a, you know, this swarm of genes inhabiting bodies, what that gene wants to do is make as many copies of itself as possible, and it can do that by you know aiding, assisting the reproductive success of the organism that it dwells in, that single, you know, that single set of molecules in a body. But if it also causes actions in the, uh, in the body it's located in, and those actions improve the reproductive success of another individual, a relative, who's likely to possess that gene as well, then the frequency of that helping gene, that gene that leads to helping, can go up because um, through its enhancement of reproduction in that relative, even if it's driving down reproduction in the, the actor. And this will all come down to the costs of action, the reproductive benefits to the recipient of those actions, and the degree of relatedness of those two individuals, which tells us the probability that that helping gene 
also exists in the individual being helped. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's Hamilton. That notion is incl- that's the notion of inclusive fitness, the idea that the gene wants to just increase its reproductive rate and it doesn't care whose body those reproductive, um, you know, those reproductive offspring are coming out of. And associated with inclusive fitness, we have then kin selection, that is selection among individuals that are genetically related, and the ones that are more closely genetically related are the ones that we favor the most. Right? Yes, exactly. That's, and, and the notion of kin selection there is simply that uh, the action of a gene um, can be, uh, a gene can be selected for its presence in uh, other organisms. Uh, the gene doesn't care whose gonads it lives in. It cares about the, you know, the, the number of gonads that it inhabits in the world. So um, when, when, when the gene is, being, is evolving by kin selection, it means that the action of the actor is causing the frequency of that gene to increase by its large reproductive effects on genetic relatives, individuals who have a high probability. So the products of kin selection, so we can think, you know, I like, I prefer to think of kin selection as the evolutionary process that gives rise to these genes. So you think of natural selection. Well, natural, you know, a flavor of natural selection is kin selection. And then what, but what it gives rise to is mechanisms in bodies and in minds that promote uh, you know, that promote actions that lead to enhanced reproductive success in those other individuals, those genetic relatives. So this is, so the process of kin selection uh, as an evolutionary process is what gives us, gives rise to nepotism, to favoritism. It's why people will spend untold fortunes um, on their children's well-being, um, but, uh, you know, will gladly, you know, will we'll hardly be willing to spend an extra dime or dollar to help a kid, uh, you know, that belongs to somebody else's family. It creates this intense favoritism for gen- genetic relatives. Mm-hmm. And we then expand the circle, let's say, with reciprocal altruism. That is a mechanism that allows for two uh, genetically unrelated individuals to establish a reciprocal relationship. Exactly. Um, and, it, and if you think about, you know, um, if you think about altruism in the Hamilton sense, you know, what's, what's interesting about that is at the, at, if we're looking at this through the, uh, through the eyes of natural selection, what, what, uh, what the cooperation that altruism generates does is it lowers the lifetime reproductive success of the, the individual whose body that gene is located in but it's paid for that by enhancing the lifetime reproductive success of the other individuals who are helped who also have that gene. So you are, at, through altruism, through the Hamiltonian notion of altruism, you are actually, wor- when you die, you had fewer offspring, you had fewer offspring than you would have if you didn't have that helping gene. The gene exists because it increases the replication of, of genes in, other, in, in your relatives' bodies. Now with, with reciprocal altruism, this this um, uh, this is a, an idea due to Robert Trivers uh, in a paper he wrote in 1971, where he was asking a really different uh, not it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a kindred question, but it's a it's evolutionarily quite distinct. His question was, is okay. So given Hamilton was right, he was really impressed with Hamilton. Um, he wondered whether it was possible for a gene to evolve 
that increases its, its bearer's lifetime reproductive success, even while it gives benefits to another individual, okay? So he was saying, what if your fitness, your lifetime reproductive success can be increased through you providing cost, paying cost to benefit another individual? That's not a, rel a relative. So you're both better off. You're assisting the reproduction of that individual, and somehow your reproductive success is also going up. And what Trivers suggested is, let's imagine that we've got two individuals, unrelated, who are able to provide low-cost help to each other that's really beneficial if you receive it. So it, yes, it's costly to you to give it, but it's, uh, I'm going to lower this so you can see my hands. I, 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 I'm in, it's impossible for me to talk without using my hands. Um, um, this individual is paying costs. still too high. Uh, this individual is paying costs in order to help this individual. If there is a mechanism that causes you to pay those costs, uh, if the costs are suitably low, so they're not too high, and the benefits are really high, and in giving that benefit to the other individual, comes into a mind that is programmed genetically to look for opportunities to help you in return in the future, then by providing help to that individual, you seed their minds with the motivation to help you in the future when you need help. So basically, I'm providing low-cost help to you that's really beneficial. That creates a motive in you to return that low-cost, high-benefit help to me in the future. And that's reciprocal altruism. And so everyone's fitness is increasing. Um, you're paying a short-term cost for sure. You're, you know, in a given moment, you're worse off for having benefited the other individual. That individual's better off for having received your help. But over the, when you add up all those costs and benefits over the lifetime, you are still better off because you're able to, you've created a world in which you're more likely to receive reciprocal excuse me reciprocal help from that your previous helpy in the future when you really need it and when that help would be really valuable so both both parties are better off in direct reproductive success as the result of reciprocal altruism or reciprocal cooperation as uh, uh, Trivers came to, to to characterize it later yeah so we've already talked about kin selection, reciprocal altruism. What about indirect reciprocity? Because that's another mechanism that you talk about in the book, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the, you know, there's been a lot of effort in evolutionary biology and, and certainly evolutionary science to try to explain the varieties of human of cooperation we see in the in the um, in the natural world, but particularly in humans and uh, you know, evolutionary, I'm an evolutionary psychologist, um, and obviously psychologists are interested in people. So they're, uh, going back to the late eighties, a biologist named Richard, named Richard Alexander wondered about the evolution of humans, moral instincts. Um, where do we get this desire, this sort of broadband desire to help other individuals? And he proposed this notion that Sometimes you, you, there is scope for natural selection to create uh, psychological systems that motivate you to help strangers. And so the question becomes, well, how, does, how do you get paid back from that? 
These are people that are not your relatives. They're not people who can pay, who you expect to pay you back directly in the future. So how could, what, what evolutionary scenario could give rise to um, this, this sort of set of sentiments where you'll pay in, in order to benefit the welfare of a complete stranger? What, um, what he ultimately ended up suggesting was that if you have, if you provide a benefit to another individual and there's a cloud of witnesses, say in the society, in the village, in the city, who are able to witness that nice thing you did and uh, evaluate that as morally good and their kind of inspiration, their elevation, their gratitude on the part of the community is strong enough that it motivates them to help you because of your virtue. And so they're going to provide low-cost help to them. It's costly, but it's low-cost help at a high benefit rate to you. Then moral um, assessments of people's goodness on the basis of pro-social behavior will evolve. And as a result of the fact that you get paid back for your virtue indirectly, uh, creates scope for natural selection to build those kind of appetites in us as well. So we're being helped by a third party, basically. We're being compensated or rewarded by a third party who has the ability to form um, not just memories of who owes it or uh, who has helped it in the future or whom it owes, but also to uh, store away moral assessments of people in its community and, and, and uh, sort of appraise them as generous or stingy, good or bad, caring and uncaring and so forth, and then act on the basis of those moral evaluations. So here's where we can get helping, at least from a, you know, under a certain plausibility scenario, for helping individuals who never will be able to help you back, either in terms of direct reproductive success or indirect reproductive success, a la Hamilton's work in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And what is your take on group selection? And I'm meaning genetic group selection, not cultural, because there's also that. But there are people that, particularly when it comes to altruism, they bring to the table group selection and as one possible mechanism to explain our levels of altruism. Yeah, right. Um, group selection has been a part of this conversation for a very long time. In fact, Darwin himself, um, in his, one of his latter books, really that was focused on human sociality and human, uh, human psychology, um, was curious about where we get our moral sentiments from. Why is it that we take an interest in the welfare of our tribes, of our groups, um, people who are not necessarily our relatives or not necessarily our very good friends? And his proposal was that natural selection might work at the level of the tribe so that um, traits that you might manifest within your group that make your fitness worse off. You're doing things to help individuals and they're getting those benefits. Those traits to the extent that they make your group better at fighting, I mean essentially that's the dynamic he thought was important. When one tribe attacks another, takes their territories, takes their resources, um, uh, and, and essentially kind of consumes another group. Any trait that's costly for the individuals within their group but leads to better fighting effectiveness, better cooperation in the, in the business of war, will spread through the population. Um, he called it tribe selection, or I, I suppose it's, it's come to be called tribe selection. 
So we can go from the 1870s straight into the 20th century and see that this, this idea, while not being developed um, with a whole lot of formality through uh, the 20s and 30s when we had what's been called the neo-Darwinian synthesis, where you had uh, evolutionary scientists bringing Mendelian, Mendelian genetics together with population genetics to try to explain natural selection in purely genetic terms, which is what we ultimately want. Uh, they begin to play with the idea that groups might have, uh, the, uh, that individuals within groups might have higher average fitness, ultimately because the group is more, as a whole, is more reproductive <clears throat> relative to other groups. Um, and so that helping gene that's harmful to your fitness within the group can still spread within the population of groups, each of which has its own individuals in it. So this idea sat around um, in biological thinking through the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And you know, if you watch animal documentaries from back when I was a kid in the 70s and you know, certainly even to the present day, you, you'll see um, animal behavior enthusiasts asking like, why does, the, why does the lion always catch the slowest gazelle? Or why does the lion always catch the weakest you know, um, you know, other four-footed critter that it likes to eat. And you, you'll hear narrators commit to this idea that the uh, weaker or slower individual is giving up his fitness or her fitness for the benefit of the group. So they're taking actions, they're sort of <laughs> willingly putting themselves into the mouths of predators for the benefit of the other healthy individuals. So this idea kind of sits out there, you know, in the world, having a life of its own. Um, and by the time you get to the 1960s, you've got full-throated endorsements of this idea um, of um, gen genetically, uh, groups consisting of genetically selfless individuals in the right kind of population landscape uh, potentially being able to take over the territories of groups filled with just individuals that are committed to seek to um, promoting their own self-interest. Uh, this is an idea that really was uh, brought to the table and, and formalized by Vera Wynne Edwards uh, in the 19, um, 1960s, and his, his work was extremely influential. Yeah, and uh, I mean, but what is your take on it specifically? Because yeah. uh, I mean, there are people and even some prominent biologists like David Sloan Wilson, who I already had on the show, E.O. Wilson also more recently, but he also endorses the idea of group selection to explain and this is interesting because they apply it specifically to our levels of altruism and try to explain why, in this yeah. case, we would help strangers or we would sacrifice ourselves to save someone that is a stranger, basically. So mm -hmm. what do you think about it? What is your take on that? Sure. Um, when Edwards's conceptualization of group selection um, was really dead on arrival, because it requires <clears throat> some very restrictive assumptions about how groups are put together, excuse me, 
how groups are put together, how they defend territories and so forth. So that idea was pretty quickly sort of uh, strangled uh, after a a decade or so. Um, But actually, in the 1970s, Bill Hamilton, uh, the William Hamilton of individual level selection uh, on on a, a, a currency called inclusive fitness, started playing around with the idea that there might be evolutionary plausibility to a form of group selection where individuals are paying costs in order to provide benefits to members of their groups. And that gene can increase in frequency even though it's reducing the reproductive success of the individual whose body it's located in. And at the, in the same year, actually, you're right, uh, David Sloan Wilson published a really influential paper uh, excuse me, a really influential paper um, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences where he, he, ma- he, where he ma- excuse me, where he made exactly the same point, identical point. And the point was uh, basically came to be called multi-level selection. And the way multi-sele- multi-level selection might work is, well, it, it's, it's, it's really aptly uh, named because the idea here is, yes, you have selection within groups of individuals. So you've got groups of individuals in a population. And there's natural selection occurring within each of these groups on, a pop, on, a, on an evolutionary landscape. So imagine we've got 10,000 individuals, 10,000 caterpillars in a population, and they exist in groups of 100 within 100 different groups. So we've got sort of 100 distinct populations, each of which has 100 caterpillars in it. Um, If the uh, selection within groups, so the negative effects of you being altruistic within your group are sufficiently low, and and they make your fighting success um, or your you know, whatever success relative to other groups sufficiently high, then the this joint action of selection both within groups on individuals and between groups can lead to the evolution of a gene that creates altruism within groups. Multi-level selection, selection at two levels. Um, if you look at this idea carefully, it works. It is a perfectly plausible way of describing natural selection and the evolution of a gene that uh, is uh, harmful to your selection, to your nat- to your fitness within groups. Um, that, uh, uh, but nevertheless, recoups those benefits by making your group, on average, fitter uh, than, uh, than than other groups. Um, the idea is exactly right. It uh, is mathematically, in fact, equivalent to thinking about natural selection from the Hamiltonian point of view. Because what you've really got within these groups is individuals, some of whom have got this helper gene within them. And with respect to that gene, that means those individuals are related to each other. They have that same gene on board. So when you're helping members of your group, even if some of them don't have that helper gene, on average, your help is going to genetic relatives, other individuals who bear that gene. So we're dealing, we really are operating on relatednesses between individuals in a landscape. And so, and what makes it work is 
the um, ratio of costs and benefits within the group. If the helping is really valuable to the group, the, the members of the group on average, and it's not too costly to you, and the mix is uh, there are enough altruists within your group, which is to say genetic relatives, then the frequency of that gene can go up in the population. And uh, so it's perfectly plausible as a way of describing natural selection. Um, and really, the, I think the best way, and I know David would agree with me on this, the best way to think about the kind of Hamiltonian inclusive fitness maximizing you know, scientific worldview that, that I'm comfortable with is just a language. It's, it's uh, you know, it's English, it's Portuguese or Spanish, and the multi-level selection approach, which, uh, in, you know, is, is focused, uh, sort of modeled on uh, this notion of selection at two levels, is like Russian or, or uh, French or something else. They're just two ways of describing the same phenomena. And David also would readily uh, endorse the idea that it, boy, we're better off if we're all multilingual, and so we should be uh, we should be um, competent with with using both sets of tools. So, yeah, that's my take on on group selection. Um, it ends up being really selection that leads to the increase in gene frequency due to its due to its effects on others who bear that gene so it really is it, it really ultimately de um, um, reduces down to kin selection or you can say kin selection reduces down to multi-level selection um, you know they're equally correct mm -hmm. so we are here trying to explain what are the mechanisms that led to the evolution of our high levels of altruism but it doesn't work unconditionally, right? I mean, our concern for others' well-being, uh, it has some limitations. And let me yeah. ask you a specific question. Uh, does taking a needy stranger perspective always boost uh, our empathy for her? I mean, does putting yourself in someone else's shoes really works in terms of creating or generating empathy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So the the problem with both the Hamiltonian approach to explaining why we care about strangers and the uh, Hamilton Wilson or Wilson Hamilton approach to multi-level selection is that we ought to expect because helping is costly, you know, helping, you know, costly helping is costly that we would evolve psychologies that prevent us from throwing our help away to individuals who are unlikely to bear that helping gene. So organisms should be finicky about the other individuals that they try to help. So they should be looking for cues to relatedness uh, or cues to the likelihood of reciprocating. And um, empathy is probably one of those emotional motivators that says, look, Here's somebody you care about. Here's somebody who's um, suffering. And you have inclusive fitness um, uh, benefits at stake in their well-being. You're better off when they're better off, either because they will be around to help you in the future or because they are likely to have that, that helping gene within you. Um, that gene is better off if it builds around it also um, psychological hardware or physiological hardware that prevent it from giving benefits to non-relatives or non-reciprocators. So um, those, those, those tools, reciprocity, 
um, and kin selection probably give, gave us the, the desire to uh, experience empathy for individuals who are relatives or who are likely to repay us. But they're, um, they're going to be more stingy with their empathy when it comes to complete strangers or in motivating helpful action toward individuals that maybe are from other groups, other language groups, other ethnic groups, other cultural groups. So you might feel empathy for someone you love and be ready to help them. You know, you, you, the help, the, the, the feeling of sympathy and tenderness makes you want to figure out what's wrong with them and how you can Im improve their lot. If you encounter the, uh, you know, the pain of somebody from a different cultural group, racial group, ethnic group, linguistic group, you might experience empathy or a complete stranger that just you have no particular stake in. Um, you might experience empathy, but we actively, research shows that we actively work to avoid it. Um, we will go out of our way because it's ultimately we know it's tied to costs. Um, so we will actively try to squelch empathy or avoid experiencing it in the first place when we, when what's at stake is whether we're going to stop and, you know, interrupt our days in order to spend time or energy or, or, uh, you know, money or other resources to help, to help a third party. So we might not experience empathy in the first place when we see their suffering. And, but even when we do, we might quickly try to get rid of it in order to um, move on to other activities that'll be more, uh, pr you know, profitable. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, what are the kinds of traits that someone has to exhibit, or at least the ones that generate more empathy towards someone that is suffering or needs help or something like that? What are the kinds of traits that really uh, turn on our empathy and perhaps behaviors that people have and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it, it seems that um, when we are directly confronted with the need of somebody that um, is, is in, in, in most ways is like us, need alone, or we can assume is, you know, uh, you know a compatriot, uh, someone who's, you know, in our, in our world and in our community, um, someone from the same university you're at, for example, um, simply knowing that they have a need and that you have the ability to provide low cost help is often enough. And that direct encounter with their suffering, knowing a little, learning a little bit about them, seeing that you have a resource that's cheap to provide, um, and would be really helpful to them. That is often enough. You encounter them, you've come to like them, you come to know a little bit about them, and you realize you have the ability to help. That's enough to, to get empathy. Um, relatedness, certainly. Um, friendship generates empathy. Um, uh, but feeling that somebody's benevolent doesn't mean you any harm. Um, and can also, and importantly, through your help can be restored to wholeness, can be restored to wellness, um, can, become, can be made productive again. Um, these are the kinds of traits that seem to promote Empathy, which in turn then promotes you, uh, uh, motivates you to look around and you know see if there is some way you can help. Careworthy, benevolent. They don't mean us harm. We know them. They have a need, and we can imagine a way in which we can help them alleviate that need. Mm -hmm. And what about more vulnerable people, like for example? Uh, elderly people, children, women, is it the case that we tend to feel more empathy or at least to show helping behavior more toward those kinds of, those kinds of people that are more vulnerable? Yeah, um, the, 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 
certainly when we see people with deep needs um, who need medical care or who need food or um, need need some cash in order to invest and build a business for themselves or who have sick children um, who, who have lost a spouse to war or to disease. These, these people really do move us. Um, and all it actually takes is some exposure to those needs, direct face-to-face -face contact or contact over you know, the television or a podcast or something like that. When we look and look someone in the eyes and see what their needs are like and realize that we have the ability to help very cheaply and very effectively, that vulnerability uh, makes us uh, willing to help. There is a caveat, though, which is we really dislike and have an aversion to helping people who we do not think are going to be helped in the long run by our help. So we're very skeptical of helping people who uh, we don't view as competent to take advantage of our resources and make the most of them to make themselves self-sufficient in the future. We don't like helping um, the idle and the ungrateful. So even when we encounter the needs of people who seem to be you know, unwilling to you know, get, the, get back up on their feet and help themselves, then, then our, our empathy really has, has, has limits to it. Um, we, if, and and like, likewise, if we see people that we don't think would be will, able to reciprocate, that, that inability to reciprocate is also kind of a, a warning light on the, on the dashboard that says, mm, you probably need to think twice about whether this is somebody that's worth investing your time and effort in because it's, it's not clear they're going to be, ever be in a position to um, you know, repay you or repay society. Mm -hmm. In the book, in trying to explain why and how we are kind to strangers, you at a certain point mention three different instincts, our knack for reciprocity, our desire for a good reputation and our capacity for reasoning. So could you explain that and how you arrive at those three instincts and put them at the base, at the basis of uh, our kindness to strangers, basically? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So for, for the reasons I kind of described, um, I, I don't think when we take an interest in the welfare of suffering people in the developing world or the education of other people's children, you know, on the other side of the country or um, the retirement benefit, you know, the, the social security benefits going to an elderly couple in, you know, I'm, I'm down in... Um, about as far in, in the you know south of the you know the west coast as you can be. I'm just 15, 20 miles from Mexico. Um, um, uh, the social security benefits of an elderly couple in let's just say in up in Maine, about as far away in the U.S. as you can be for me. Um, um, that is not well explained by kinship. Uh, for for the reasons I say, we're very good at figuring out who our kin are. Moms know who their children are. Um, siblings know who their siblings are. And those abilities to recognize kin uh, are evolved. Those, those are, there are evolved systems that uh, build motivational systems around our convictions that people are related to us. So it's not going to be kin selection. Um, likewise, those same kinds of people are going to be unlikely to help me in the future reciprocally. So I think reciprocity plays a rather, is sort of a small bit player, right? Um, there are ways in which our, our, minds are going to be sensitive to reciprocal benefits that could come to us 
um, when we help others. And, and, and I can say a little bit more about that. But of the evolved instincts for cooperation, or if you like, for altruism, I think the one that at the end of the day still stands on the table as a, as a, a meaningful contender or meaningful nominee is our love of glory and our love of a good reputation. So we do help in order to be seen as good, decent people because of the ways in which that reputation can benefit us in a larger community. We seem to like people who are magnanimous, who are generous, who are willing to share, who have the resources to share. And so if you are, are come to develop, acquire a reputation as someone like that, that can lead people to want to associate with you and perhaps in the long run, repay your generosity and kindness. So I think reputation ends up mattering in the long course of human history for the sort of things that motivate philanthropy and uh, magnanimity and, and charity and, and things like that. Having said that, as I look at, hist at human history which, over the past sort of 12,000 years, which, which really is what I devote about two-thirds two of the kindness of strangers to explaining, I, I, th I think the love of glory and the love of sort of buying the gratitude of other individuals was not what did, was not the psychology that did the heavy lifting in the cultural evolution that led to the modern institutions we have for meeting the needs of strangers. I don't think it explains UNICEF. You know, I don't, ex I don't think it explains the Red Cross. I don't think it particularly well explains the modern welfare state. To get to those innovations, I think you actually need to make more, uh, you, need to, you need to shine the spotlight more on our evolved capacities for reasoning. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason I, I've come to believe that is when I look at this long arc of history um, over the past 12,000 years, what I see in sort of seven different e uh, epochs or eras is uh, groups of people in societies confronting mass suffering and trying to come up with courses of action for how they ought to respond to it. And this, is, this was actually quite unique in the evolution of human societies because for the first time we really are surrounded by people in large enough quantities that there might be people that we're never going to get repaid for helping. And this just this is a dynamic that gets, just gets larger and larger and larger as we expand the human community from city-states to uh, larger cities and polities and uh, true states to large nations uh, to ultimately a, you know, a global outlook. We really are increasingly talking about strangers who we might help without any consideration of direct repayment or any direct reconsideration of glory. So what I see is confrontations with suffering, confrontations with ex the exploitation of uh, widows and orphans in the earliest city-states um, of, of um, the, the uh, um, ancient Near East. Um, in the cities in classical Europe, uh, when uh, wages really plummeted and um, uh, uh, epidemic became rife, mm -hmm. uh, all the way into uh, really well-formed states of the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, when people realize it, workers are unable to uh, thrive and have 
make decent livings, all the way up to the future, where we're thinking about uh, strangers in the developed world. Um, each of these confrontations has led our ancestors say, to say, like, what should we do about this? Is there some response that's, that would be um, the right thing to do? Is there a moral mandate? Can we find an ethical reason or some self-interested reason in order to take action on, on the, uh, to the benefit of these strangers? So it's seeing suffering in large quantities among people you don't know and you're unlikely to see in the future. Corporate decision-making. Should we care about this? Why should we care about this? Is there some reason why we ought to think about taking action? And then reasoning about like, what's the best course of action? What should we be doing as a society? What's the best way? What kind of criteria should we be using to figure out what the best way is? So all along, what I see is reasoning. And this isn't the reasoning uh, that you think about when you think about um, you know, trying to resolve for yourself uh, whether Socrates was mortal, um, you know, or what, you know, uh, you know, based on syllogistic reasoning, or uh, whether a tree uh, makes sound when it falls in the woods if nobody's there to hear the sound. You know, I'm not talking about um, the kind of reasoning we teach in a logic course um, or in a in a in a philosophy course, but instead practical reasoning. What's our problem? What should we do about it? And, and this is an evolved instinct as well, um, but I, it's, it's this particular set of instincts that I think have really driven the conversation over the past 10 or 12 millennia. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's get into that. We've already established here the evolutionary basis of our uh, altruism. And in the book, uh, you talk about the cultural evolution of our altruism as it is presently. Right. And right. Uh, you go through seven different ages or eras and uh, you've already touched a little bit on that. But let's start with the age of orphans then. That is the first one. And that you say in the book, if I'm not mistaken, that it runs from undergathering to farming until the 12th century BCE. Yeah, yeah. I call this the age of orphans because... Um, this is a transition from the world of hunter-gatherers, which was highly communal, highly cooperative. You couldn't make a living without cooperating with other people in your community. And I say that really literally because uh, humans are specialists in hunting and eating meat. It's not the only thing we eat, uh, obviously, but we did evolve to hunt large game, which made us really different from any of the other uh, e existing primates on the planet, and the only way you can successfully hunt large game is to pool effort among many individuals. And the way that works is, and this is because your hit rates are so low, um, the average hunter is only going to be successful one day out of 30 hunting days. So you can't feed a family on, uh, you know, by hunting one, you know, for one uh, hunting large game with only having success once a month. But if you pool the effort of enough hunters, you can bring down a large animal, and then share out shares of that animal with all the individuals in the group so that everyone gets some protein more or less every day. Nobody takes home an entire wildebeest, but everyone gets a share of a wildebeest. And then so on days when you're unlucky, you still get a share, your family still gets a share. And on days when you're lucky, everyone else gets a share. So deeply communal uh, in just simply the act of producing protein 
but in just a variety of other ways, human, human societies uh, in that sort of hunter-gatherer uh, paradigm that we, we use to characterize our, our, our um, uh, an ancestors in the, in the um, um, Paleolithic era, um, they cooperate in lots of other ways. Within groups, and that's not just within families. It's uh, friends, and you know, certainly your nuclear family, but also the, you know other nuclear families within a group. When we move into cities, there's a huge change as we stop focusing on foraging and hunting big game to make a living. When we move into cities, the way of making a living is highly agricultural. It's sedentary. We stop moving around several times a year to chase game and to chase water and to chase plants that we like to eat. We are stuck on plots of land to make our living. And so when we move into cities, what we actually can see in the, in the historical record is a huge rise in inequality. And, the reason, and there's two reasons for this. One is that the resources you need to make a living suddenly become heritable. Land is heritable. Livestock are heritable. All of the other goodies that you build around your life in order to uh, be able to work the soil to uh, tend to your animals. That's all that material, those material goodies become heritable. You can pass them from one person to another. And we're, because we evolved with an interest in helping our relatives, you're going to direct those resources to relatives. So equality, inequality becomes sky high and the effects of bad luck and good luck also increase. So inheritance of property and you blend that with individual differences in good luck what that means is individuals who are un extraordinarily unlucky may have to actually dig into their own resources more and more simply to stay a, at sort of survival level subsistence, whereas the really lucky are able to take risks, buy a new set, you know, buy a new, buy, buy five new cows, um, buy new livestock, buy the farm of the individual next door whose husband just died. Uh, the, and um, so you see actually the rich becoming richer and the poor becoming poorer. This creates scope for heavy-duty exploitation, particularly for orphans and widows. Um, and so this is really where we begin to see um, a kind of fatalism about misery, um, sort of showing itself in the writings of the time. And if we look back, we see lots of fatalism of people saying, life just is sort of inexorably sucky. You are never going to have enough to eat. Things are always going to be falling apart. Um, life is just going to be lousy. The poor will always be poor. Your luck is always going to get worse. Um, so in, the, in light of this inequality, what you begin to see in the second millennium uh, BCE are the legal codes, the famous legal codes that we know today, the most famous of which is the Code of Hammurabi. But there are lots of examples of this, these kind of legal codes. And one of the innovations you see in them are legal protections for widows and orphans. And it's just as plain as day that um, leaders like Hammurabi are going out of their way to say, you can't exploit these people too much. You can't charge them exorbitant interest rates the way you've grown accustomed to. Um, if you're going to... Um, um, use debt slavery in order to um, get something out of them that allows you to care for their welfare, you know, if they're trading their labor, you can't make the debt slavery too onerous. You can't 
you know, you, you, you have to, you know, don't enslave them too long. Um, if, um, if people put up some of their capital, they, um, they sell you part of their farms or they sell your, their houses to you so they can make a living. You have to give them opportunities to buy that, buy those goods back if their fortune changes in the future. Um, you can't extort people in sort of using mafia style tactics. So here's the first indication that we're building legal codes to protect the most vulnerable in societies. So that's why I call it the age of orphans. And it really was an extraordinary time where we move from really broad scope for exploitation to the evolution of some, some protections for the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the age of compassion, that is the next one, let me just ask you more of a general question. So th there are parts in the book, like, for example, when we, you describe the Enlightenment eras and uh, the Golden Rule, for example, in the Age of Compassion, it seems like you are describing a history of ideas, a cultural evolution of ideas. But uh, when, we, when you were just now describing what happened during the Age of Orphans, you described the conditions where people lived back then. So do you think that it is really about the ideas, that the ideas are what influence people's behavior? Or do you think that this is more of a bottom-up approach where the conditions influence people's behavior and then the ideas are just about the intellectual elite uh, with time to observe how people behave and the conditions where they live uh, come up with an explanation or at least uh, attach some ideas to those same behaviors. Yes, I, I, I do think that uh, for most people in most societies, most of the time, when they are engaging in the kind of helping behaviors I, I'm interested in uh, for the book, um, they aren't always acting on the basis of reasoning within their own minds in real time. Um, you know, I, I don't think everyone out there in the world is is thinking, you know, is a little, has a little ping, Peter Singer up in their heads, you know, t telling them, you know, that they have to, uh, you know, help as effectively, as many people as possible, as effectively as possible. Instead, when I talk about the role of ideas, I am talking about ideas that began largely with elites, um, that began with scholars religious leaders, politicians, kings, um, you know, social engineers, and their ideas get converted into legal codes, institutions, um, fashion fads. And so uh, you have real ideas that germinate where some subset of people are saying, what should we do about this situation? And then they build institutions like legal codes, and they just simply force people to adhere to these legal codes. But the thi the reasoning did happen. For example, I think when these legal codes of the uh, the the archaic world were developing, the reasoning was happening among the god kings of the time, who said, "There's a real opportunity for here for me here to improve my reputation and to buy the loyalty and gratitude of the poorest in society." If I present my, you know, these ideas to them as a way of easing their burdens, then I can acquire for myself a reputation as the shepherd of the poor um, or as the defender of the orphan and widow. And this will lead to not only glory for me, but it will lead to 
um, it will help to um, signal the legitimacy of my offspring as future leaders. It will benefit my household even today. Um, so there are real reputational rewards to be had if you're one of these ancient god kings, realizing that it would be a good, you know, it would be a good idea to protect the orphan and the widow. So you say, what could I? What is this a problem? What should I do? And you discover, well, if I help these people, I'm going to ultimately be helping myself. The other reason of of, of that period that I think is really important is that when you protect the the most vulnerable, you also prevent the, the least vulnerable, the highest power people, from being able to raise their own power and status and wealth even further at the expense of the poor. And in the world, and uh, in this archaic world, we think of god kings as being all powerful, and they certainly were very powerful, but they were actually only one of three traditional bases of power within the society. You also had the priestly class, and you had all of the aristocrats. So if you think of Game of Thrones, you know, these archaic worlds are very much Game of Thrones type uh, cities where you have, you know, with anyone in any one of these sort of city states, or, you know, large, let's call them kingdoms. Um, there's not just the sort of uh, uh, royal power base. There's also this priestly class with lots of resources and lots of power and all these fat cats with lots of money and big farms. So as the god king, you're able to lower the, the, the power of your rivals by simply empower, you know, uh, in, increasing protections over the, the poorest in society. So these are reasons. You know, we may view them now as like, not particularly evolved reasons to build legal codes to protect the, um, the, the vulnerable from exploitation. But they're reasons, and there were reasons that were compelling. And what they led to is an elevation in our regard for the welfare of strangers. So when people are out there not exploiting the poor, are they thinking like, you know, um, are they thinking about their ethical obligations to the poor? Sometimes they probably are, but not always. Sometimes they're just thinking like, well, this is just the way we do things or I'll get in trouble if, you know, if I, you know, am, you know, extorting the poor or putting too onerous a debt on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so after the age of orphans comes the age of compassion. And I mean, you talk about the axial age when you mentioned the age of compassion. Yep. Do, are they the same thing or not? Um, well, yes, I, I've created in the, in the book this place in world history between about 800 BCE uh, before the Common Era and 200 BCE, so the, the first century before Christ, if you like, BCE, now we say common era. Um, in that period, you see the birth and efflorescence of the world religions that, we, that people still practice today. Uh, Judaism, Christianity, uh, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, and then later, uh, well, later, Christianity and, and and then Islam. That 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 600 year period is often called the Axial Age. Um, a lot of people think there wasn't anything real. There was no real Axial Age, uh, but I think it's a useful landmark, historical landmark, uh, and and his, useful way of characterizing that period because there were weird things going on. There were special things going on. Ethical systems were becoming more sophisticated. They were becoming more pro-social. Um, 
uh, kings were becoming less godlike and more just like super special, super rich, super powerful human beings. Um, the, so society was becoming slightly flatter. Um, we were beginning to ask questions about um, what do we do about strangers and what's the role of compassion in um, living a good life. So things do get different during that era. And um, I mean, it's also the age of classical Greece. And you do see in that period a variety of new ethical ideas and new institutions, both of which seem to support care for the poor and the needy. So I do think something special happened in that age of, if you like the, call it the axial age, um, in the, for the purposes of the book, I'm calling it the age of compassion. Um, so yeah, I think there is something discreet there, uh, you know, with fuzzy edges, of course, just like all of these eras. I mean, if you think about it, like the information age, where did the information age start? You could say like with the transist transistor there, you know, it came out of all of its, you know, all of the innovations that preceded it. And so I think the, you know, we can playfully refer to something like the axial age without taking it too literally as having some single, you know, day, month, and year when it started and single day, month, and year where it ended. Day, month, and year when it started and single day, month, and year where it ended. Mm -hmm. And next comes the age of prevention, but it, it it begins by around uh, f the 1500s, right? That's right, yeah. In that, ax in that age of compassion or axial age, you see the golden rule evolving in all of these world societies almost simultaneously. It's so strange, but you, know, you see the golden rule showing up in Hinduism, in, um, in, uh, in Buddhism, um, in China, you know, ancient Chinese religion, Confucianism, uh, Judaism, and uh, you don't see it so much in classical Greece, but you do see lots of institutions arising uh, within societies for the care of the poor. Um, you see in ancient Israel, you see soup kitchens, dowries for widows, hospitals, schools. And in, in fact, um, in Axial Age Israel, you couldn't start a new city that didn't have a hospital and a school in them. They had to have those resources. Um, you see hotels um, that, uh, or hostels, if you like, for strangers from other societies to come and use so they don't have to sleep in the streets. In Greece, you see the first Veterans Administration, um, you know, pensions for war veterans. You see uh, daily food rations for the disabled. Um, you see the first work programs. Um, you know, lots of modern sounding innovations in classical Greece. So that really is, I think, something special, both ideas and institutions. And we kind of live on those ideas and institutions all the way through the first um, the first 1500 years in the common era until you get to classical Europe about 1500 and um, material conditions are changing society wide enough that we see the need for new innovations um, wages are stagnating um, the poor are becoming very vulnerable um, the price of food is increasing um, we see actually epidemics and all of these conditions conspire to make life pretty lousy for the poor and, and even, for, you know, certainly for certainly for the working poor, but also for the um, disabled poor as well. Life is now uh, political life has organized into uh, large uh, city states um, with princes or senates that run the show 
And each of these sort of distinct, politically distinct cities is confronting similar issues. The, the major issue is we have all of these poor strangers showing up, veterans of wars, or they, you know, people who couldn't make a living where they were, showing up, looking for work, uh, possibly with all kinds of problems, infectious disease, uh, disabilities, blindness, um, missing legs, um, deafness, uh, alcoholism, um, orphans, widows, who are here getting sick, freezing to death in the streets. And this becomes a problem that everybody also wants to solve because of the second, you know, in part because they, you know, they've in, they're the inheritors of the axial age ideas of compassion for strangers um, and also religious convictions that caring for the poor is a way of uh, obtaining treasures in heaven for yourself. Um, but they're also, they discover self-interested reasons, other self-interested reasons, materialist, materially self-interested reasons. When we have poor people dying in the streets, it's bad for business. Um, it, it creates crime as people desperately look for ways to make a living. Um, it creates vice. Uh, it promotes gambling, prostitution, you know, all of these things we don't want. It creates social unrest. The link between pandemic and social unrest is really old. So in these city-states, again, people start scrabbling around and casting about for solutions, saying, how do we prevent these problems and the second-order problems they create for our society, for our city, for our kingdom? And that's really where you begin to see the first secular, top-down plans uh, for systematic citywide interventions to try to assess poverty, uh, assess individual people's, um, the causes of individual people's needs in poverty, to try to figure out ways to get resources to them, to, dis to distinguish between the idle poor, people who simply won't work, you know, who, who will refuse to work, and those who can be restored to productivity with the right kinds of interventions. And then we really see plans for establishing work programs, um, for um, trying to uh, build incentives for, pe for people to work rather than not work, and importantly, for these systems to be administered through the secular state rather than through the church. So big innovations starting in about 15, let's say 1500, all the way through the 16th century. Um, care for the poor is becoming increasingly centralized and secularized. And we, this is when we see the evolution of taxes, specifically mm -hmm. devoted for care of the poor. So it was, a, it was a really unusual age, and I really, it does look to me like a discrete sort of historical era when we look at the historical record. Mm -hmm. And the fourth era that you talk about in the book is the first poverty enlightenment era, and it includes the origins of the welfare state and also some ideas like distributive justice and the fact that people started to think about poverty in a different way because before if we, you were born into poverty that's just bad luck you and we can't do anything about it but uh, with the advent of this era people started to try to understand and ameliorate poverty. I mean, it's a problem now that we can tackle, right? Exactly, exactly. If you want to put a uh, pin in a particular era to describe uh, the first poverty enlightenment, you would probably put it right at 
the two decades before, you know, in 1780 to 1800. Um, and the reason I would put that pin there is because we have the confluence of three sets of ideas, the ideas of Rousseau, the ideas of Adam Smith, and the ideas of Kant. Um, a historian of philosophy, uh, philosophy named Fleischhacker has suggested that, 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 that the congealing of these three sets of ideas gave rise to the modern notion of distributive ju justice. Rousseau brought the idea that inequality breeds inequality, life becomes unfair to the poor and increasingly unfair because, the, because natural inequalities among uh, people ultimately lead to big material inequalities where the rich can then begin to engineer society ever further in their own favor. So um, he says this is, you know, this is more morally outrageous. Um, we have to find tools that reduce this inequality, political tools. Mm -hmm. From Adam Smith, you get, uh, you know, Adam Smith is, you know, we always associate him primarily with, with the notion of the invisible hand, that markets make people, people better off and so forth. And of course, that is absolute, uh, you know, uh, authentic Adam Smith. But there were other things he actually seemed to care about even more. And one of those was the notion of how we make the material well-being well of everyone better. So he was really concerned about the poor in ways we just don't talk about today. But he talked as much about poverty as he did about the invisible hand, in fact, more. Um, but his, you know, if you, if you look at what he had to say, beginning in the beginning of, you know, at the, at, in the first chapters of The Wealth of Nations, in, yeah, in, in The Wealth of Nations, he talked about the fact that no matter where, what your position, your state, um, you, uh, whatever your status in society, you had a genius for something. Everyone was, had the capacity to be a genius in some part of uh, the, the economy, um, whether that was the street porter, the person who carried your bags up and, uh, up and down the street, carried your goods for you, all the way up to the people, what he called the people of fashion, you know, the, wealth pe the wealthy people who got to wear fancy clothes and eat good food and, you know, live in fancy houses. Everyone was good at something and could actualize, could turn what they were good at into a living. Um, what it took for that was the gains of trade and also regulations um, that that prevented um, uh, that regulated markets slightly, that made education available to everyone, and some other basic sort of regulations on society. Um, and importantly, he said the poor aren't poor because they're bad. The poor are poor because they're poor. It's because the material conditions in which they have to try to to make a living. So what we have to do is create opportunities for them to make profitable livings for themselves. We don't have to, you know, we we don't attribute it to their vice or their laziness. And then finally, from Kant, we get the idea of uh, that every human being has equal dignity uh, and equal worth. Um, so. The way we get to sound ethical principles is to ask ourselves what are a set of rules that would apply, that anyone would endorse um, uh, for themselves and for other people. This is basically his notion of the categorical imperative. Any rule you would, universe, you would see universalized that you would hope would apply equally to everyone is, a, is the kind of ethical moral rule we want. And because everyone has equal worth, uh, because everyone is able to reason, 
everyone has equal worth, no matter what you might think, no matter what your own eyes or your own interests might tell you. So you put all these ideas together and you get this modern notion of distributive justice, which goes something like, look, everyone has basic material needs. We all live in societies. We've come to be dependent on these societies to make a living. And so everyone should be guaranteed the means in order to not starve in the streets. And that's that basic notion of distributive justice that really is one of the major ideas that carries forward into the, uh, it, it, you know, through the 19th century. Um, and along with that, I think the second big idea is that you can bring a scientific mindset to poverty. And when you begin to apply the tools that have been so successful in the natural sciences to the social sciences and you begin to analyze society and its problems with a scientific worldview, well, then you can, we can use, we can move from sort of fatalism and, you know, a reliance on sort of uh, religious beliefs uh, in order to, to help us guide our needs, our, our care for the poor. Uh, we can transition from that to using scientific principles, rolling up our sleeves and starting with the conviction that these are problems to be solved and we'll solve them by trial and error. So this is an era that gives rise to um, kind of the modern social work movement. It gives rise to the idea that if we want to figure out how to cure po poverty, we should figure out how many poor people there are. So you see the mo first modern statistical studies on poverty. Um, you see the rise of the settlement house movement, um, the idea that we should move into individual poor cities uh, or poor parts of cities and uh, try to figure out what kind of services we might provide or, or study poverty intensely in those particular neighborhoods. You see um, the uh, um, you see the rise of charitable organizations and also charitable organizations whose purpose is to organize other charitable organizations. So we start to get really systematic about how to try to think about where the poverty is located and to really fine tune interventions. And you also see the rise of the modern welfare states toward the end of the 19th century, where we see the very first nationalized insurance systems for, um, for old age pensions, for disability payments while people can't work, uh, um, uh, uh, payments for illness. Then we see as we move into the, t the, uh, the 20th century, um, the first large broad scale welfare states where we have um, housing allowances for the poor, we have family benefits, we have uh, food benefits, we have um, old age pensions, we have disability pensions, uh, and we begin to really create large insurance schemes around our citizens out of recognition that actually um, we're economically better off, not if we're throwing the poor under the bus, but if we are allowing them to, to, to actualize their ability to be productive. And so this is a real change due to, you know, starting with Adam Smith, that we're not better off when we have this cast of semi-slaves. We're better off when those semi-slaves become people who can participate in markets and build wealth for themselves um, and because the people they trade with will also be better off due to the gains in trade. So huge innovations that I associate with this first poverty enlightenment. Mm -hmm. 
And another very interesting thing that you talk about in the book is the fact that there were some changes in terms of the expansions of our moral circle over time that were brought about by catastrophes, let's say. So when you talk about what you call the humanitarian Big Bang, you mention and this is interesting because I'm in Portugal, the international response to the great Lisbon disaster that was basically... Uh, okay, so could, could you tell us about that? Sure, sure. Um, in the 18th century, there was, as you well know, a massive, massive earthquake uh, that, uh, along with the, the, the earthquake itself and the tidal waves that followed it and the fires that followed that, uh, just leveled. Um, Lisbon, major trade center in the uh, burgeoning world of international trade, um, horrific damage, um, had the potential to pauper the entire country of Portugal. Um, and in response to Lisbon, uh, I mean, this was an untold tragedy. This was this was like this was a natural disaster, unlike the world, you know, the, the, the uh, Europe had 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 ever seen. Um, you see the nations, their trading partners wanting to assist Lisbon in their, their recovery and reconstruction effort. Very unusual. Prior to Lisbon, um, the, the, the countries of Europe were rivals. They viewed each other as participants in a non-zero-sum game. So Portugal's disaster would have been England's game, gain or Spain's gain or, or Hamburg's gain. Uh, particularly so because they were all colonial countries, right? I mean, they, they were colonizing uh, practically uh, the entire Earth, let's say, apart from Asia, maybe. But. That's a really good insight. I hadn't thought about that. But they really were rivals in the sense of working for uh, a massive global land grab. Um, so, yeah, that's that's right. They were rivals in that way. But also becoming increasingly interdependent on each other through trade. So um, you, in response to Lisbon, Lisbon, in response to Lisbon, uh, you you see uh, England and Spain and Hamburg um, be, go reaching into their own pockets, sending their own ships in order to provide uh, goods and money and supplies to assist with the reconstruction effort. First multilateral international relief efforts, uh, um, humanitarian relief efforts. Mm -hmm. While that's going on, two other really cool innovations start occurring. Uh, uh, well, one of the ideas that comes out of the poverty enlightenment is the idea that there's a basic human dignity uh, and out of that dignity becomes certain requirements to help individuals who are in need. That basic sort of distributive justice idea begins to be applied to nations themselves. And the, the idea that percolates up from this is the idea that nations owe, uh, owe the, have, uh, have the duty of care for other nations in humanitarian crises. And furthermore, that they owe each other the ability to help each other build their economies, to develop, um, as long as it isn't too costly to, to, to their societies. Mm -hmm. So multilateral aid, international aid. Likewise, coming out of Lisbon, you see the idea that the secular state is responsible for managing its own disaster responses, the, not the church. This is the, it's so parallel to what we see during the first, uh, first 
um, poverty enlightenment. Um, it's it's the it's the purview of and responsibility of the secular state to um, to uh, organize recovery and reconstruction efforts after disasters. Um, and then the, sort of the third major sort of intellectual uh, change is the rise of voluntary association, um, international voluntary associations devoted to solving particular problems of human suffering. So you see the first um, societies of, in, uh, in, uh, of people who are all committed to teaching life-saving in order to uh, save dr people who are at risk of drowning, you know, people who've fallen out of ships or are, are, have been shipwrecked. Um, uh, the, first the first voluntary societies, international so societies promoted to the improvement of prison conditions, to the abolition of slavery. Uh, almost any ca cause related to human suffering you can think of, a voluntary international association cropped up around it. So these three things are really changing during the humanitarian uh, Big Bang, starting with Lisbon and moving out in these different directions. Um, and along, you know, as you follow through the 19th century, this idea gets played out uh, through um, uh, through the the, evol the the evolution of the Red Cross and the belief that injured soldiers have the right to care on the battlefield. Um, the idea that um, the collateral damage of war, uh, non-combatants, even on even the non-combatants of the people that we're fighting with, they have the right to care. Um, uh, in, uh, prisoners of war have the right to care. And you see this humanitarian ideal, this notion that, um, <laughs> plainly put, it sucks to be the victim of a crisis. Just the, tent, the, the tendrils of that idea just spread out through lots and lots of concerns. I mean, this Kantian idea of basic dignity that everyone possesses and as a result has the right to humanitarian regard, we extend out through the Civil War, uh, the, the American Civil War, through all of the wars in, in Europe, um, and then finally through World War I and then into World War II, this voluntary humanitarian movement, cap, uh, you know, you know that we maybe is typified best by the Red Cross, or Save the Children, or um, I mean, those are two great examples, um, leads also to uh, official cooperative effort among nations to uh, in in uh, following the First World War and the Second World War to begin to meet the 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 needs of the, the those third party victims of war, widows and orphans, um, but also to assist with reconstruction um, after the wars. So we begin to we we begin to see our humanitarian responsibilities not only to the victims of war but to the vanquished as well. The war is over. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of German suffering. There's a lot of Greek suffering. There's a lot of Italian suffering. You know, Europe is. Just, just utterly leveled and brought to its knees in the in the in, in the aftermath of World War II. Most of the, I mean, not perhaps not most, but a huge amount of the suffering actually took place after the war was over. You, you know, uh, Western Europe was just well, all of Europe was just rivers of misery, and so the um, 
the uh, Allies um, in the Second World War uh, and teamed up with the rest of the world's democratic states to mount systematic efforts to assist with the immediate needs of resettling people, providing them with food, shelter, and clothing, providing supplies for reconstruction. We spent huge amounts of money. Um, it it, it uh, did not, when, when people look in retrospect, they don't know that it had all of the impact it had hoped for. But this notion that we owe the duty of care to people sort of unconditionally, you know, after the guns have become silent, um, is an idea that's still with us. And so this, again, is one of those uh, ideas that we now live with, that we continue to live with today. So that's, that's where that humanitarian Big Bang ends up. Uh, I, I mark it as the, you know, the end of World War II is where it reaches its real fulfillment as, a, as an idea or set of ideas. And you mentioned the end of World War II, and that's interesting because in the book, before we get into the second poverty enlightenment, you also talk about how war, particularly in the 1800s and in the first half of the 20th century, was also the mother of some uh, humanitarian inventions, right? Uh, uh, you mean like material inventions? Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. Uh, this is when we get the notion of triage. Um, this is when you see the modern conception of ambulances. Um, this is where you see the notion of um, a, a professionalized nursing. Um, it's where you see the, the, uh, the dissemination of life-saving techniques. Um, this is uh, where you see the, um, the idea that we can um, track humanitarian disasters and, and plan for them in advance. Um, the idea that we actually can track these things um, uh, and tr uh, transmit news of, about them through telegraph, or we, can get new, or we can get supplies to each other through more efficient shipping. Um, as the costs and efficiency of ships go down, we, we are ever a better able to get relief to where it's needed. So we learn about disasters more quickly, and we're able to get help more quickly. So technology and trade uh, work really hand in hand through the humanitarian Big Bang to not only make us want to help people in the face of humanitarian disasters, uh, but make us able to help them, to get help, to, to realize they need help, and also to be able to get help to them. So innovations and technology really worked hand in hand with these intellectual innovations. <laughs> yeah. And so in the second half of the 20th century, we get to the second poverty enlightenment, as you name it in the book. And uh, or before, people already worried about poverty in their own countries, but starting in this era, let's say, people started worrying about global po poverty. Right. That's right. That's right. If you think of the humanitarian Big Bang as coming to a close, you know, if you like, in 1948 or something like that. That is the opening of what I call um, the second poverty enlightenment. By the way, it's not, it's not my ter terminology. Um, this is uh, due to the uh, development economist Martin Ravayon, um, who's at uh, Georgetown University. Um, he referred to the second poverty enlightenment, and I, I love that term, as a time when we recognized uh, following World War II, that um, the world, the entire world is better off if everyone is well fed. 
um, simply as, as a humanitarian obligation, but not only as a humanitarian obligation, but as a way of preventing the Third World War, with the idea being coming um, from uh, Franklin Roosevelt, the president in the U.S., and Winston Churchill, that when people are well-fed and they're happy with their lot in life, they're less vulnerable to uh, the um, temptations of totalitarian regimes, and particularly communism. They were very concerned with the spread about the spread of communism. So among the world's democratic nations, and, and joined also by, by other nations as well, the United Nations began to form and congeal and really grow in strength and began to formulate plans for stimulating development in what they once called the third world. We now just call it the developing world. Um, but this is where you begin to see these nations ask, how can we get technology? How can we get scientific information um, and scientific innovations to the developing world so they can become uh, self more self-sufficient? By the time you get to 1960 or 1970, um, everyone recognizes that we're not putting enough money into this. The problem is tractable. We can bring many of these societies to self-sufficiency, but we're going to have to put more money into the effort. We can't just use technology and scientific export, you know, exports of our science and technology. We have to we have to provide some money so that they can build, you know, infrastructure and capacity. So this is the this is that second poverty enlightenment, the re recognition of poverty globally, and recognizing that we have the ability, you know. That, that we have the, an ethical mandate and also the ability to help and try to improve the lot the lots of uh, people that, yeah, true strangers, absolute permanent strangers, people we know are out there suffering, but we're never going to meet. They're never going to thank us. We'll never know their names, but we're still in a position where we can help them. And uh, our, our ethical uh, convictions are telling us that we probably should help. Mm -hmm. And we are now in the age of impact. So what distinguishes the age we are in right now from, for example, the second poverty enlightenment? Yeah, I think um, what I really wanted to point to is that our concern about poverty, both in, in, in our own countries and also in the developing world, are are just as they were in the beginning of the 20th century. We care in the same ways that we did, but we have taken, and I believe, I really do think this is something unusual beginning at the turn of the 21st century. We become deeply committed to the notion that taking poverty and taking need and taking suffering seriously means figuring out how to do it effectively. So it's no longer good enough to try, or it's no longer good enough to have good intentions, but we have to have an ethical framework, an intellectual framework, a economic framework that allows us to figure out what's working and what's not working and how to devote our resources to the things that do work and to be able to pull them away from the things that aren't working. So it's the, I call it the age of impact because what we begin to care about more and more in all of these, do, these domains of the kindness of strangers is impact. How are we going to get the most bang for our buck 
not only in terms of domestic, you know, uh, programs and individual philanthropy, but also on the international stage by trying to encourage uh, development in developing nations. We want to know what's working and how we uh, and what's not and where we can get the most bang for our buck. Mm -hmm. And in this case, things like or technologies like the Internet and social media play a big role, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are, you know, there are certainly ideas. And if you, if you think, you know, I think probably the, the idea that's most influential is, is Peter Singer's notion that altruism should be effective. If it's good to help and if it, you know, if we assume it's good to help suffering people, then it must be even better to help more. And helping more can be done per dollar by focusing on cost effectiveness. If I, if giving a dollar to someone to, to assist them with a need is good, then using that same dollar to, to alleviate even more need must surely be better. This idea is, I mean, certainly Peter is, is you know, uh, br brings this idea, uh, you know, um, sort of crystallizes it into a kernel that everyone can kind of wrap their minds around. You know, he makes it so plain. But we see it showing itself in the, the the way we design systems through attention to economics, attention to evaluation, um, getting serious about trying to figure out which programs don't work. I mean, before even figuring out which programs don't work, what are the programs that exist? You know, where, what aid projects are going on in the developing world? Prior to sort of the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st, It was hard to even know. There was no place where there was no sort of universal tracking system for knowing, you know, where is there a hospital being built? You know, where is there a water treatment plan being built? Where are roads and highways being developed? Where are schools being developed? We couldn't, we couldn't track the effectiveness of these programs because we didn't know where they were. So you see uh, the beginnings of the use of um, geographic information systems. So we can track each, you know, place each of these programs on a map. You know what resources are being spent to develop them. We can then um, uh, um, combine those data with demographic data on the health and well-being and employment and education and infant mortality rates of the people affected by them. So we have we can build big data sets that really begin to allow us to evaluate truly, like which of these things makes people better off and which don't work. And so maybe we should think about getting rid of them. And the same in the domestic situation. You know, economists now spend lots and lots of their time trying to figure out what social programs make people better off and which ones don't. We don't always pay attention to those needs, uh, those assessments, because there are other political constraints that prevent uh, government officials and politicians from acting on the basis of data. But we have the tools at our disposal to... To, and an, inter, an intellectual framework that should help us, help to direct us on how to, how to uh, help effectively. And the internet has been huge in that because the internet it gives, is this conduit for generating that information and then being able to make sense of it. Um, furthermore, so that's one way in the internet has really been powerful is just helping us to know the needs. You know, it's kind of a continuous evolution from horseback to ships to telegraphs, to trains, planes, and automobiles, to the internet. Ever, you know, information becomes ever faster 
and the ability to coordinate responses becomes ever more efficient. Um, so at the corporate level, you know, the, uh, the, the technology of the information age has played a huge role. And it's also played a huge role at the level of individuals as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so in our age, people are not only interested about donating to charity, or at least the people who think about these kinds of things, uh, donating to charity simply uh, just for the sake of, let's say, moral grandstanding, but they want to know what are the most effective charities out there and the ones that really are out there to solve the problems that they are dealing with. Yes, exactly. Um, not everyone is uh, an effective altruist uh, in, in, in yet, anyway. Um, we, we give for all out of when, when we engage in charitable giving or philanthropic activity, we might do this for all sorts of reasons. There might be, if you're a super wealthy person, you might say, well, I just like astronomy. You know, I want, I want to know more about the universe. So I'm going to um, pay for a big um, uh, observatory at a university that I like. Uh, or, you know, or I'm really, I'm really into um, protecting rainforests. So I'm going to devote a lot of my wealth to that. So we often act on our affinities or our interests. That's fine. That's good for you. But there's another way to do uh, those calibrations, and that's to ask. Uh, and this is this is Singer's idea. Um, that's that's also you know really uh, it, it been taken up in the large philanthropic community by people like Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, and Warren Buffett. How can we put our dollars, you know, big amounts of money to work in the developing world, in or or somewhere else, to leverage huge amounts of effectiveness to really make a dent in particular kinds of human suffering. So how can we, with a given dollar or a given billion dollars, do the most, have the most impact in alleviating suffering? So that might be, so that would involve, you know, at the, at the scale of individual giving, that might just simply involve going to a website like givewell.com which is devoted to evaluating individual charities to figure out whether their causes are effective in in reducing suffering, lives saved, uh, children who are able to go to school, reducing uh, infant mortality, maternal mortality, some metric like that. And furthermore, do they have the capacity to make use of new dollars that you might invest. So at the level of individual philanthropy, those are the questions. What's cost effective and what's the marginal value of the next dollar? We're using that same kind of decision making. Uh, you know, people like the Gates Foundation and, and Warren Buffett, they're, they're, they're trying to apply that, encourage a really big dollar cap of philanthropists, if you like philanthro capitalists, to apply the same sorts of reasoning. And then the world's nations are increasingly taking seriously the need for evaluation and assessments of cost effectiveness. Um, they're not doing that perfectly by any means, but there's a real pressure on um, uh, organizations like the United Nations to try to invest in interventions that are going to make the world better off because they're dealing with finite resources as well. So you would, in a perfect world, 
you would, I guess in a perfect world, you wouldn't need any interventions at all. But in the slightly less perfect world where um, we're going to use dollars cost effectively, uh, given that there's a finite number of them, you want to allocate them to the programs that will reduce the most suffering. <laughs> You've already talked a little bit about this earlier, but could you tell us a little bit more about what you call practical reasoning? Because when we were talking about those three ingredients, let's say, that you present in the book that are behind the evolution of our altruism, let's say, um, you you mentioned that you were, when it comes to reasoning, you focused more on practical reasoning. What is that yeah. about exactly? So practical reasoning is simply uh, the... Uh, we we engage in practical reasoning anytime we want to figure out um, which grocery store to go to or which route to take home, uh, given that traffic is backing up. You know, it's six o'clock in the evening and it's, it's time to go home, or to figure out which way the deer went that we're hunting, or um, you know, any any we constantly engage in practical reasoning. It's essentially trying to find answers to important questions by looking at the possible alternatives and trying to evaluate which of them are best. So we have some criterion of what, what is best. And it could be any number of things. It could be sp the speed home plus making sure I don't get killed, you know, don't drive off a cliff. Um, those would be the criteria by which you're trying to reason about how to get home. Um, what's the, what are the criteria that make the best decision about which grocery store to use? Well, you think about, you know, which ones have what I want and what's the price and how long will I have to drive? Anytime we're making decisions like that, we're engaging in practical reasoning. And I've been very influenced by the writings of the, um, um, the, uh, French, um, psychologist, uh, uh, Hugo Mercier mm -hmm. and um, the evolutionary anthropologist Dan Sperber, who uh, have written brilliantly about practical reasoning, um, both in some of their published journal articles um, and in a recent book. Um, uh, you are referring to the argumentative theory of reasoning. Yes, that's exactly, exactly right. Um, you know, th their argument is that human reasoning exists to promote argumentation. Our capacities for reasoning actually don't work so well when we're just trying to solve complicated problems in our head because we have lots of biases in perception, um, which you know they, they, they talk about um, brilliantly. Um, the, the, when reasoning becomes powerful, is when we use it in, to, in argument, argumentation, arguing with each other, people who are equally concerned with figuring out what's the best way to do this thing. So, you know, I have my perceptions, I have my opinions about the world. Um, I care about my opinions being right. I want to impress you with how right I can be. But those are not your interests. Your interests are in showing how right you can be and how impressive you can be. Um, and we're lazy, uh, we're cognitively lazy when we find enough evidence to support a pre-existing uh, conviction. We stop, you know, engaging in informational search. So we're terrible at reasoning on our own because we have these internal cognitive and perceptual biases. But when I bring 
my lazy reasons to you and you bring your lazy reasons to me, now we're in kind of it, we're, we're gonna argue and I'm going to see all of the biases that came, came to, to bear in your argument and all the, maybe all the weaknesses to it and you're gonna see the weaknesses in mine. We both want to be right. We would both like to make the correct choices but it's hard to do in your own mind. So you put your reasons out there, you let people attack them, you let people put their reasons out there and you attack them. And because we really are trying to be correct, we really want to figure out where the deer went. We really want to get to the right grocery store. Um, our, our decisions with regard to those criteria, getting home in one piece as quickly as possible and so forth, those, reason, those, those outcomes do get better. They get better with time. We can find truth according to some kind of criteria or at least better approach it when we reason corporately. And I think that that's the kind of reasoning that's made the biggest impact on the evolution of um, the kindness of strangers. What are we going to do about all these poor people? You know, what are we going to do about this academic, uh, this, pardon me, this, ap this epidemic uh, that's shown up at, at the city gates? You know, what are we going to do to prevent communism and totalita to to <laughs> totalitarian uh, movements from taking hold? Uh, these are the problem problems we want to solve. Now you bring your reasons, your convictions, your data, I'll bring mine, and let's have an argument about it. And may the best argument win, because we are all committed to a particular outcome, doing the best we can given this particular kind of crisis. So this is what I see popping its head up over and over as we've gone from uh, you know, the world of 12,000 12, years ago to the world of major develop, you know, major commitments to development in the, in the developing world and welfare states where, you know, we regularly spend 25% of GDP on social expenditures domestically, um, where we have mega foundations like the Gates Foundation and the Warren Buffett Foundation that, you know, have the ability to really make differences with private donations and we have individual people like like you and me in the world trying to figure out how to devote some of our income to uh, you know to good causes it's re it, I really do think practical reasoning has been indispensable through all of that mm -hmm. so just one last question we are now in the age of impact as you name it in the book what about the future? What do you think are some of the problems that we will have to care about in the future and try to solve? And perhaps uh, what are some of the ways by which we will try to solve them? Yeah, as, as, I, as I talk about in the last chapter of my book, um, I'm really terrible at predicting the future. I discovered this when I was working on a, on a previous book. Um, so I was hesitant to stick my neck out too much here on what the future might hold. But it seemed to me a safe bet, uh, almost sort of self-evident in fact, that we, we are going to have to figure out how to invest um, really valuable resources in solving the problem of climate change and dealing with its impacts. We need to be acting now but we need to be figuring out how to act now in a way that's effective and that's cost effective because if we invest in the wrong approaches, those, you know, in a world of finite resources where there are, are opportunity costs, we may not be investing in the right ways to, to solve the problem. Um, so 
again, we have to look at economic data. We have to look at the possible scenarios for the future. And we have to invest in interventions that will put a dent in the problems, the problems of human suffering that it will create. Um, and it falls to us using uh, the best data and the best thinking we can bring to it to figure out of the numerous ways we might make investments to mitigate the effects of climate change, which of them will be effective. So that's one. I mean, I think that's just key. Um, we're going to continue to have to deal with inequality. Inequality is real. It's a problem. It's going to get worse as our, at least in the short term, as uh, we convert our economies increasingly to high-skilled jobs um, that require high levels of education. We're going to have to think about how we move workers more and more into that informational economy, particularly when lots of it is going to become automated. We're going to have robots doing a lot of jobs. So I, I am... I, I, I believe in the long run we will that, that these, these, these changes will make everybody better off. But in the short term, they're going to make a lot of people worse off. And we have to think about how to ease their adjustments into these new economies. Um, they, you know, people are going, there is going to be pain in the middle class and in the working class. And, and you, know, you can't wave that away and say, well, we'll we, we will reach a new equilibrium eventually. Yeah, we, we hopefully will, but that's, there's pain in the middle there that we have to deal with if we care about human suffering. And then, of course, the thing that I didn't talk about that I really wish I had is the possibility of, uh, you know, global um, problems of coordination around things like pandemics. Yeah. That's, yeah, that, uh, that's something that we are learning now, right? That's exactly right. We were totally unequipped, even though all of the signs were, were there for anyone to read, uh, that the world was perfect for a massive global epidemic that would bring the world to its knees. We weren't ready for that. We don't even, you know, right now, we, we don't even have a framework for how to cooperate across boundaries. In my country, we can't even figure out how to cooperate within the boundaries of the country. So we do not know how to think altruistically about these kinds of major collective action problems. They're new to us. Um, We've torn, in fact, torn down a lot of the infrastructure we might have relied on, the post-war infrastructure, actually, of the second half of the 20th century. We've given up on, you know, on maintaining those public goods. So we've got serious problems associated with that, that are about making resources available to benefit other people's welfare. Um, so the time has never been more ripe, I think, to really think about how to take the insights from all of these ages right up to the age of impact and apply them to the big global mega problems that are on our plates right now. Yeah. Okay. So, Dr. McCullough, just before we go, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find my website uh, through the University of California, San Diego. Uh, just Google Michael McCullough. I'll come up. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at M-E underscore McCullough, me underscore M-C-C-U-L-L-O-U-G-H. Um, and I blog at socialscienceevolving.com, um, where I write uh, about social science and uh, large, often about its, um, its relevance to thinking evolutionarily about human psychology. So there's three good ways to track me down. 
Yeah. Okay, so guys, again, the book is The Kindness of Strangers, Our Selfish Shape Invented a New Moral Code. And please run and buy it. It's a very interesting book and a very good read, by the way. So thank you a thank lot you. for writing it, Dr. McCullough. And thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It was a pleasure to everyone. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Ricardo. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. And to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. And I also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and main supporters, Karin Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klingpi, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalanias, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingarten, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Marco Neves, Max Belby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spigny, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Yevon Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Labrant, Os Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, Sardus France, David Sloan Wilson, and Yasila Deza Araujo, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Dr. Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Verge, Vega Gidi, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.